All right. Let's get started. Why don't we uh, bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the beautiful day we have outside. Thank you for this beautiful weather we have here in Southern California. We thank you for blessing us today. Thank you that we can come together to worship you. But Lord, we also thank you that you are everywhere. You're here with us, and you're certainly with those who around the world. Father, we pray as we give this time to you, may we literally sit at your feet. May your Holy Spirit speak to us, teach us, encourage us, exhort us. Help us to hear what we need to hear, Lord God, and and move us in our lives that we may be closer and closer to you, Lord. We thank you for this time and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I, I might be dating myself by asking this, but how many of you remember the old show, The Twilight Zone? Any Twilight Zone watchers here? Every, every summer, I remember every summer as a kid, I grew up watching Twilight Zone every afternoon. Twilight Zone was on. I'd watch Twilight Zone and like get ramen, instant ramen, and, and that would be like my afternoon every day, almost seemingly for, for entire summer. There's one particular episode I remember called The Hitchhiker, and the scene uh, starts off with this 27-year-old woman who's stuck, uh, his car broke down on the side of the road, and she was traveling from New York to California, and there was a young man who was trying to help her with the car, so trying to get it fixed, and it's kind of funny, his dates, because you know, got a blown tire, and he's like, oh, how fast were you going? And she's like, I think I was going maybe 65. That tells you how old it is, right? 65 was way too fast, right? I get annoyed when someone's driving 65 on the freeway. Um, but so, so she's, he, he's helping her out, and she's getting in the car because they're going to go to take it to the service station. And as she goes, she looks through her mirror or through her window and sees this uh, middle-aged man with a peculiar smile hitchhiking, thumb out. And she looks at the person, the man's looking at her, and she doesn't give it much mind to it. And she's like, that's kind of weird, kind of odd. And so the next scene is at the service station. The guy is getting her car ready. She's getting ready to go. She gets in the car, and as she gets in the car, she looks in her mirror And there's the same man, same smile, thumb sticking out, hitchhiking for a ride. Now that's a little weird, right? A little odd. So she drives away wisely, right? Drives away. And as she's traveling, everywhere she goes, she sees the same man, same smile, same thumb sticking out, looking for a hitchhike. Now she's getting a little unnerved, right? The next stop. And she describes this man as not menacing, quite ordinary, but wherever I go, there he is. Wherever I stop, I see him. No matter how far I go or how fast I drive, he's always ahead of me. Same man, same smile, thumb sticking out. Well, the most climactic part of this episode 
It's at night, pitch black, dark, road is closed, and the man, or the, there's a construction guy holding her off from going forward. It's just kind of like a cliff kind of situation. And so she stops, but she looks in the mirror. Same man, same smile, thumb sticking out. She freaks out, understandably, right? She moves away from the barricade and drives as fast as she could to escape this man. Well, she goes up, and there's some train tracks. And as she drives onto the train tracks, what it, of course, what happens? Car stalls. She's stuck in the middle of the train tracks. And of course, what's coming in the distance? A train's coming from the distance. She's trying to start a car. Can't start it. Can't start it. And as she looks ahead across from the train tracks, what does she see? Same man standing right in front of the car. Same smile. Thumb sticking out, hitching for a ride. I won't spoil what happens next. But now I can tell how many people haven't seen that episode. I bring up that episode because for many people, their past is very much like that hitchhiker. Wherever they go, no matter how far they go in life, no matter how fast they go, they look in the mirror and there is staring at them is their past, just like the hitchhiker. Staring at them. Wherever they go, their past is like a reminder of what was and still is in their life. As far as, as, as much as they've gone from the past, the past is still almost like a haunting reminder of what was a go, but what currently is. Now, just to let you guys know, if some of you are like, man, all right, first time we get home, we're looking up Twilight Zone. All right. It's only available on Paramount Plus or YouTube. I, I looked at the episode. I had to buy the episode just to refresh my memory. But uh, so, I mean, if you haven't, no, I'm not going to advertise for a company. But you're going to have to look for that episode. I'm not going to tell you. All right, maybe I will, if you ask nicely. But for many people, the past is like that. And for many people, they feel like the past will always be there. But the question is, is that what our life is intended to be like? Is our past always supposed to be with us? Always that reminder. Is this how Jesus intended us to live when we decided to follow him? Today's message is titled, Leaving the Past Behind. And I want us to think about, what is Jesus really calling us to? How should we live our life in light of following Him? So from the beginning in Mark, we've seen the purpose of Jesus' mission and ministry being laid out. We've been talking about this, right? And there's no question... No question, Jesus is shaking things up. He's shaking how people see life, their values, their sense of godliness and worth, the kingdom of God. He's turning it upside down for many people. And I've challenged us to think about, if we think that being a Christian means that we can live our life just the same, just as we always have, then you have a misunderstanding of what it means to follow Christ. If you think you can decide, okay, I'm going to believe in Jesus and do everything the same way, then you have a misunderstanding. 
Because our perception and our understanding, what we read in Scripture, is that Jesus came and he turned people's perceptions upside down. He said, we need to shake things up. So we're going to continue to look at where we left off last week in Mark. You have your Bibles turn to Mark chapter 2. If you remember last week, you saw that Jesus called Matthew or Levi and that he was a tax collector. And just like Simon and Andrew, James and John, Jesus would walk by. He saw Matthew in his tax collection office there and he says, come and follow me. And just like the previous four, he left everything and he followed Jesus. We see no question, no hesitation. He left what he did for a living. There was no turning back for him to follow Jesus. And so we see the next scene is that Matthew is holding this feast. He opens his home. He opens his dinner table, his meal table, not only for Jesus, but his followers and his circle of friends. We talked about last week how Matthew was a tax collector. And in those days, that was not looked very highly, but very lowly. The tax collectors were known to kind of steal from the common people, take more than what they should have, and pocketed the excess. They were not seen very highly. And we see from Matthew, most likely he invited his friends, his fellow tax collectors, and those who he associated with. Because we see there was tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners there. So we have this scene at Matthew's house. Jesus is there, the guest of honor. We see Matthew and his circle of friends. And then we see some Pharisees there as well. And they're questioning Jesus, or his questioning Jesus' disciples. Why is Jesus eating with these people? This is a very understandable question, not only for them, but I'm sure many other people probably ask the same thing. Because if you open your dinner table, your meal table, that was a, a gesture of fellowship, a sense of agreement, a sense of social fellowship, like, come and you are my guests at my meal table. So the Pharisees are asking, why is Jesus eating? If he's a teacher of Scripture, a worker of God, why is he with these sinners? Because in their minds, you are unclean. You are guilty by association. If you're sitting with the unclean, you are also unclean. So they ask Jesus, or they ask his disciples, why are you eating with these sinners? And if you remember last week in verse 17 of chapter 2, Jesus responds, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We talked about how Jesus wasn't there to be like one of them. Jesus wasn't just hanging out to fit in with the tax collectors and sinners. Why was he there? To influence them. Jesus welcomed the sinners. Why? To transform them. To heal them. Provide healing that they need. They recognized their need for help and they were willing to be there with Jesus. So he's calling those who know they're in need and want to be changed. See, Jesus' response to the Pharisees of like, why are you eating with them? He turned the tables on the Pharisees very cleverly. When he says, I, am not, I didn't call the righteous but sinners, he's kind of throwing a kind of a little bit of a nudge to the Pharisees. 
Because the Pharisees, they didn't believe they needed it. They believed they were righteous. They understood what it meant to be righteous. So they didn't see the need for Jesus. So when Jesus says this, I came to call not the righteous but the sinners, what he's saying is, look, I came to call those who recognize they need me. They need it. They can't do it on their own. They can't be righteous on their own, right? They know they are in need. So he turns the table on him. Verse 18, let's read on what he continues to say. Verse 18, it says, And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 19, and when Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So here we see we have a second interrogative question directed at Jesus. The first one was, why does Jesus eat with these sinners and the tax collectors? The second question, the Pharisees asked Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your followers, your disciples, don't fast? See, at this point, we get the sense that these Pharisees, they're trying to poke holes at Jesus, right? They're not looking to find answers of truth, but they're trying to find reasons to discredit Jesus. They're trying to find reasons not to believe in him. I don't know how many of you have ever had a situation like that, right? So you, someone knows you're a Christian. Maybe you're trying to share Christ with them. And they're just hitting you with question after question after question, right? You answer one way and they move on to another question. And they move on to another question. Have you ever experienced that kind of frustration? It's like machine gun questions. Boom, 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 boom. They're not trying to find an answer. They're not trying to find truth. But they're just trying to find justification to not believe in Jesus. So here we see the, 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 the Pharisees are asking Jesus, why do your followers not fast? It's a question to, to question the legitimacy not only of Jesus but his followers. Why aren't you as righteous as we are? Now let's give you some background of fasting here. There are some different reasons for fasting. Fasting was associated with prayer and petition. So you're praying to God, so you would fast, you, would, you wouldn't eat food, and you would offer that period of time of prayer. It was an expression of deep loss. We see this in an example with David after the death of Saul and Jonathan. He fasted. It was an expression of hope. When David's young, young son was, was sick, young child was sick, he spent some time of fasting to pray for the sick, the sick son that he would be healed. Sometimes people fasted as a sign of repentance prescribed by God. It was associated with major festivals, the Day of Atonement and the New Year's. There would be a period of time of fasting. The Pharisees practiced the tradition that they fasted twice a week. That was their tradition. I like this description of fasting. Fasting is a tangible expression or direct corollary of one's relationship with God rather than a religious discipline. 
I like that description of fasting. So when you, you deny your body, you don't eat for a period of time, and you devote to prayer. I like this description. It's a tangible expression of your relationship with God, or it's a direct corollary to your relationship with God. So it reflects this, this attitude of prayer unto God, rather than some kind of religious discipline. I like this because fasting became an expression or a way to kind of measure one's righteousness. Right? In that time, fasting became a, a measurement of, of how righteous or how pious one can be, can be portrayed. It led, in Jesus, it led Jesus to say in Matthew 6, 16, he, he warned and said, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What is Jesus addressing here? When, when people do things out of a sign of their sense of righteousness or piety or wanting to show what, you know, how, to others how good they are, they make it a display out of it. Right? So if you're fasting and you're hungry, you know, maybe you just kind of put this face on. You're like, oh, man. Whew. And people say, what's going on? <coughs> you okay? Oh, yeah. I'm just praying. I'm fasting for the Lord. I'm hungry, but it's for God. Right? Sometimes people are going to treat fasting as a display of your sense of righteousness. I'm sure we've seen it, right? We may have been guilty of this some point in time. You're doing something, but it's for the Lord. I'm going to suffer, but I'm going to suffer for the Lord. And I'm going to let everybody know that I'm suffering for the Lord to make ourselves look good. And Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to fast, wash up. Make it look like no one knows because your audience is God. If you're fasting, if you're devoting yourself in prayer, let it be only to God. You don't need to let everybody know. You don't need to let everybody know how much you're, you're suffering. Right? In the 24-hour or 30-hour famine, if you've done it with the youth, Man, by like hour five, the youth kids are like, oh, I'm so hungry. I missed lunch. What am I going to do? Can I make it to hour 10, right? Jesus saying, look, just wash up, pretend it's normal, and just let it be a prayer to God. Fasting wasn't meant to be a measure of your sense of piety, sense of spiritual discipline, or evaluate your righteousness. Let it be a reflection of your relationship with God. But see, a lot of times we can do that with certain spiritual disciplines. We sometimes evaluate our spirituality, our relationship with God with these things, right? I'm spiritual because I pray three times a day. You feel good. You prayed in the morning, the afternoon, and night. You're like, man, my relationship with God is just great. I prayed three times today. Man, I'm feeling good. I read my Bible for 15 minutes. I even read an extra chapter today. Man, my relationship with God is doing great. I'm feeling spiritual because I skipped a meal for the Lord. 
I didn't eat breakfast this morning. I'm fasting. Well, you don't eat breakfast anyways. That's not a fast, right? If you skipped a meal because you just skipped a meal, that doesn't equate to a fast. But sometimes we do these things. Our church attendance becomes a measurement of our holiness, our sense of righteousness, our sense of spiritual health. We serve. And so we serve at church, so we must be doing really good in church, in God's eyes. So the Pharisees, they ask, why aren't Jesus' followers fasting like we do? Are they not as righteous as we are? Because if students reflect their teacher, what does that say about the teacher, right? If the disciples, Jesus' disciples aren't fasting, what does that say about Jesus? What's Jesus' response? Now, if we consider that, that description of fasting as a tangible expression or direct corollary of our relationship with God, Jesus' response is quite profound. If we're to understand fasting as a, a reflection of our relationship with God and how we communicate with God, Jesus' response is very profound. His response to why fast, he says, because I'm right here. Right? That's his response. Why don't they fast? He says, because I'm right here. Jesus places himself as the ear to the prayer and fasting. If people conceive as prayer and fasting as my prayer to God, Jesus' response is, it's because I'm right here. I'm right here with them. Need to ask the Father? I'm right here. Want to experience closeness with God? I'm right here. Jesus responds with parables. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. He brings this analogy of a wedding celebration. And in a wedding, it's cause for great celebration. In that culture, it would be unheard of. There would be no reason for someone to be fasting during the preparation leading up to the wedding ceremony. It's not a time of fasting. So Jesus is saying, look, there is no mourning or sadness because the bridegroom is present. There's no need. But Jesus declares there will be a day when the bridegroom won't be there with them, and then they will fast. We can see that Jesus most likely is alluding to his death, right? There will be a day when I physically will not be there, and in that day, yeah, there would be cause and reason to fast. Jesus continues with two more parabolic statements, these statements of, that's, that he uses parables and these two statements kind of seems out of context. Sometimes when you read the Gospels, when he's challenged, sometimes Jesus replies with these statements, and you're kind of wondering, like, did that make sense? How is he addressing their concerns? Look what he says in verse 21. He, continu- he continues and says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Now, what is Jesus meaning by these statements? These are some statements that I'm sure a lot of them are like, huh? Didn't we just ask why you don't fast? Why your followers don't fast? And then you talk about the bridegroom and the wedding, and then you bring up this analogy of patching old clothes. What does Jesus mean by these statements? Well, let's understand this analogy that Jesus speaks. First, let's talk about the whole garment issue. What does he mean by this? Now, if you're patching an old garment, you would not get an unshrunk cloth or a new piece of garment to sew the old garment. Why? Because the new garment is so tightly wound as you wore it, it will tear away at the unshrunken cloth or the old garment. Luke chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, when I was a kid, our family didn't have a lot of money. So um, we had to make do with what we had. And as many, as, as many young boys do, right, in elementary school age, uh, you know, I was active and played at recess and stuff. And, you know, I had a tendency, like all boy, young boys do, you got, little, you got little holes in the knees, right? You wear it. Boys are like diving on the ground and this concrete and stuff. The knees get dirty and holes are made. Well, I remember I, only, I didn't have so many pairs of pants. And I remember this one pair of beige corduroy pants that I had. Yes, that ages me. I understand that. Beige corduroy pants. I remember exactly the pants had a, in the back pocket had this little green frog with a smile on it. I don't have a picture, sorry, so you can imagine. Yeah, that was a little embarrassing, I must say. But I remember I got a hole in these pants. And so my mom, who knows how to sew, got a patch and sewed it on the hole. Now, that was completely embarrassing. Why? Because the patch did not match the pants whatsoever. I think it was like green or red, or I don't know what the color of the patch was, but I have these beige pants and this tear and this new patch of clothing that didn't match the pants whatsoever. I don't think I wore those pants ever again. All right, I wore it to school once, and kids laugh, and that was the end of it. I'm like, I'm not wearing these pants again. I don't care if I have to wear the same pants every day. I'm not wearing these pants again, right? Jesus is saying, if you have an old garment that's a tear, you don't get a new pair of cloth, tear it up that hasn't been worn in, and you patch it up because it's just going to end up tearing at the old garment and going to make the situation worse. Jesus continues with another parable, the example of storing new wine. Verse 22, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Now, what's that about? Well, in the process of making wine, they'll get the pressed grape juice, and they'll store it in either jars or these, these tanned goat skins. All right? They made these little things out of the goat skin. And so when they fill the, the skins with the wine, with the juice, and they allow it to ferment, and that ferment, fermentation process would, would release gases, right, carbon dioxide, and it would expand the skins. 
So after the, the process is over, the skins are expanded and you have the wine. What Jesus is saying in the process, you're not going to put new wine into old wineskins because those skins have already been stretched to its capacity. If you fill it in the, with the new wine, it's going to continue to expand and it's going to burst the skins. Right? Makes sense. So you don't put new wine in the old wineskins. So if you're sitting there with Jesus and, or the Pharisees or sitting here right now, you're wondering, what do these two analogies have anything to do with this context? What is Jesus up to? Well, let's take everything into context. Let's understand everything that's been going on in the scene, in the context, so we can understand a picture of what Jesus is showing us here. We start off with Jesus, right, calling Matthew. Jesus calls Matthew, a tax collector, to follow me. And Matthew follows Jesus. The next scene, we see Jesus is at the meal table. He's the guest of honor, and around him are all those who need a physician. The sinners, the ones who are looked down upon, even the ones who believe they're more righteous than everybody else. We have Jesus' followers. We have John the Baptist's followers. We have everybody here, there. And he's being questioned, why was Jesus dining with these sinners? Why is he opening his fellowship to these people? And Jesus answers, his response is, this is why I came. I came to those who need a physician. I came to call those who know they're sinners and they need that help. I didn't call those, I'm not here to call those who think they're good enough and don't recognize their need for me. The next thing we see, Jesus' disciples don't fast. That question, why don't they fast? And his response was using using this analogy of the bridegroom. As long as the bridegroom is there, there's joy there. There's no need for mourning. There's no need for sadness. As long as Jesus' presence is there, there is no need to mourn and to grieve. There is joy in the presence of Jesus. Then Jesus uses the analogy, patching old garments with unshrunk cloth. What's he saying there? Jesus is not patching the old with the new. He's not simply getting what was old and putting a new patch on it. What does that mean? Jesus is not about patchwork fixes. Right? We have these things in our life. Something's wrong, we try to patch it up just for, just for a time to make it better just for a little bit. And a lot of people, a lot of Christians have this perception that Jesus is just about patchwork, getting what's broken and just putting a temporary fix on what we have. Jesus says, no, you don't put a new garment just to patch what's old. What's his point? Look at the new. New wine in old wineskins. He says, look, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. What do you do? You put new wine in the new wineskins. The new is better than the old. The old ways are no longer adequate any longer. And I believe this is really a a statement to the Pharisees as well. The sense of old covenant. The sense of what you need to do of righteousness. Jesus comes on the scene and says, look, this is a new covenant. We're going to see in Good Friday when Jesus takes the cup and passes the cup. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant. 
What Jesus is doing is whole new. It's not fixing the old system in the sense you can do things the old way and patch things up. He's look, I came to give you a new covenant. I'm giving you what is new. For those of you who have computers, I don't know if any of you have computers that are working on the like Windows 95. I don't think there's any of you out there. But if you have a computer that's using Windows 95, you are not going to be able to do the things that new or current users do right now, right? The system's too old. It can't, just, it can't operate those functions, right? If you're going to get a new car, you have two options. You can get an old one, or you can get a new one. Put cost aside for a second. Which would you prefer? You want to get a new one. You don't want to constantly repair the old vehicle. All our vehicles, you know, we've always bought used, and it's a pain. It's a pain. Because you buy a car, used car, and you get something fixed, and a month later, it's something else. It's the tires, it's the battery, it's the radiator, it's the hoses, it's the engine. It's, it's like, oh my goodness. But you see, sometimes people have this perception that this is the life of the Christian. You believe in Jesus, and you know what Jesus does is he just patches these things for you as you go along in life. A lot of Christians have this mentality that life stays the same, just when something happens, Jesus will patch up these things. For many Christians, they have a past that they'd rather not be a part of, or memories that they'd rather not have, but it becomes a continuous present in their life. And it's caused them to live the same way. And Jesus is saying, look, this is not what I intended for us. The past isn't supposed to be that constant reminder everywhere we go, and it's a current present. He says, I want to do something new in you. Look at G- oh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You see, this whole picture with Matthew, I think really portrays Jesus' mission again. It's very interesting. I've gained a new appreciation in Mark because Jesus is laying out what he's doing from the very beginning, this picture. He says, I came to call those who know they're in need, who need the physician, who are sick, who are tired, tired of trying to be good on your own. I came to transform your life. Change the way you view things, how you see things. I think this is one reason why a lot of people say Christianity doesn't work for them. Because they feel like they can live their life just as they want except to believe in God. But God's saying, no. Let me transform you. If you're hurting and broken, God says, look, I'm going to heal you. You are no longer that person. I've made it new. You're no longer that person who struggled in that sin. Let me change the way you see things. Change your desires. Change the way you see who you are when you look in the mirror. I'm making all things new for you. That's why I see Jesus 
making this bold statement to those who are at the table. What's going on is new. And Jesus is encouraging us to have that sense like, look, let's live that new life that God has for us. If you feel like that past that you lived is a constant haunting reminder, that's not what Jesus intended for us to have or to live. We live different. We live new. And we can present that to the world and say, look, I understand, but there's a hope in Christ that completely changes things that he offers you. I'll end with this. Matthew left his old life to follow Jesus. I think that's indicative. Perhaps this is why we see this long follow-up to Matthew's calling. Andrew and Simon, James and John, we don't have a whole lot of follow-up in their following other than they follow Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector, a known sinner, someone who no one, the common people would not want to sit with. But Jesus invited him into fellowship and said, I'm going to change your life. And his life was changed. That's what Jesus invites us to. A life of transformation. We're leaving the old life behind. Yes, we're reminded of it. God, throughout the Old Testament, reminded the people, remember what I have done. Remember where you came from. But that's not where you are anymore. Make sense? When you're driving in a rearview mirror and you look back, I remember when we, we, we said goodbye to, to Katie in college. You look in the rearview mirror. As you're driving, where she is is a distant memory, right? Because it's, it's, it's far away. When we drive, what we see in the rearview mirror is distance, but we remember. You can remember what you, where God brought you through, but it's not your current condition. Does that make sense? God wants to do something new in your life. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. As we sit and as we pray, I don't know what the new may be for you. I don't know if you're sitting there and you feel like you haven't been able to escape your past, the past things you have done. I don't know if you can relate to that episode of The Twilight Zone where the past just seems to be a constant reminder and it makes you feel like this is who you are. But I believe Jesus is saying to you, it doesn't have to be that way. You are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in the hearts today. And if someone is struggling with their past, maybe it's sin, maybe it's just heartache, maybe it's some things that's been done to them, Lord, I pray that you would heal. You would heal the wounds, the hurts, 
the lies, the heartache, the burden of sin. And that they would walk into freedom in Christ. As we stand and as we worship, I pray the Spirit would minister to your heart and your mind. Let's stand and let's worship.